You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Sean Parnell, who's the author of the best-selling memoir, Outlaw Platoon. He's also a retired U.S. Army infantry captain who served in some of the heaviest combat in the Afghan war and the co-founder of the American Warrior Initiative, a charity that honors and empowers our veterans. Sean joins me today to talk to me about his new book, Man of War, which publishes on September 11th from William Morrow. Welcome, Sean. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I want to talk about your work of fiction, but I really also sort of want to put into context who you are and what your experience has been for those who might not be yet familiar with your writing. So you are best known for having written a memoir that published in 2012, and it was called uh, Outlaw Platoon. And it was the story of your experience at 24 years old in Afghanistan. Correct. I was a young lieutenant in the 10th Mountain Division and 2nd Battalion, 87th Infantry Regiment. And people have talked about that book, Outlaw Platoon, as sort of a blend of band of brothers and we were soldiers once and young. And and it was really a remarkable account of your uh, experience in that particular war. And now you've followed that up several years later with a work of fiction, which I think is so interesting. You talk about how you wanted that first book, Outlaw Platoon, to be a way for people to better understand what war is like. But you've also talked about how you believe fiction can better help us examine and understand challenging and unfamiliar ideas and perspectives. What are the themes that you're going after in Man of War? Well, first of all, that's that's a great question. Um, and yes, I, I wrote Outlaw Platoon so that I could capture the legacy of my soldiers, put it on the page, and make sure that Americans understood what they went through. And, you know, that's critically important because I think it helps bridge the gap between the free society that we live in and those that protect our freedom. And the closer those two elements are together, the better we are as a country and the better we are as a people. And so that was the main goal behind writing Outlaw Platoon. But I think you can also help bridge that cultural gap by writing mainstream fiction stories with characters that embody the greatness of the American warrior ethos. And that is the selflessness on the battlefield, the love, the brotherhood that we share for each other, all those great things that make the American soldier or American warrior so incredibly special throughout history. And so with Man of War, it was all about trying to put all of those values into one character, one standout hero character that our young people in this country can look up to and aspire to be like. You know, when I was a kid, my favorite movies were Back to the Future and Indiana Jones, and I used to love Marty McFly, and I used to want to carry a whip around just like Indiana Jones because those are the heroes that I loved. And ultimately, as a young kid, they imprinted on me. You know, I wanted to be like them. But we don't, in, in our generation today, there's a lot of rebooting some of the amazing heroes that we had uh, growing up, and that's a good thing. But we also need new heroes as well, and I'm hoping that Eric Steele can fill that void a little bit. He can be a hero that young... Yes, an archetype that young kids aspire to be like, because he's good. You know, he's a good guy. 
he, he, he's complex, but ultimately he's good. Now, Brad Thor, who's the best-selling author of Spy Master, says that the new book is an exciting, action-packed debut that bristles with intrigue, deceit, power, and treason. And that's all true. It's a great, great page-turner, which I know is also really, really important to you. And I, I think you've said that you you see it as Jason Bourne meets House of Cards. Yes. So let's set the story up a little bit. I know there's not a lot you can say because it's so suspenseful, but tell us what you can about the story. Well, I mean, Eric Steele is thrown into a situation in Beirut and, and expected to figure it out. And um, he doesn't really realize that the, the man that is pulling his strings is, is somebody uh, – who has trained him from the very beginning. He's a mentor-type character, and I, and I love mentor-turned-enemy-type stories. They feel very personal in a way that I think a lot of people that read them can understand, and they really feel it. They can feel that personal connection because we've all experienced having a mentor in our lives that that you you know you always wonder if you can measure up you can always you always wonder if you can do the things that your mentor can do and so that is the challenge that Eric Steele is up against in this story and when i was creating and, and writing the story i i wondered what would be the most devious devastating scary plot that you could have a bad guy unleash on the world and and that was you know something that's been on my mind since i've been back from afghanistan and and experienced some of the factions of these terrorist cells that we fought over there what if these guys got their hands on you know a man portable nuclear weapon i mean they weigh 60 pounds you can carry them in a backpack and and what if they got their hands on an untraceable nuclear weapon i mean like some of these countries you could just walk a nuclear bomb into a stadium and drop it off in a garbage can and detonate it and and what like it would be absolutely devastating but it, it's a reality that we have to cope with. In fact, I would even go so far as to say I'm I'm kind of amazed it hasn't happened. You know, really? yes. In the wake of the Soviet Union collapse, I mean, you can walk a hundred yards in Afghanistan without finding you know a thousand 107 millimeter rockets stashed in a cave somewhere that was left over from the Soviet invasion in the 80s. And the Soviets had suitcase nukes. The Soviets had backpack man portable nuclear weapons. I mean, they had like something like 60 of them. And I think. You know, when I was doing the research from this book, three of those manned portable nuclear bombs are unaccounted for. And so it amazes me that it hasn't happened already. And so when I was writing this story, I'm thinking like, well, this is the nightmare scenario. And, and I say in the book that it's really like, you know, trying to thwart an attack like this is tantamount to finding a needle in a stack of needles. How do you stop it? And that's the ride that readers will take in this book. So tell us a little bit about the characters who are on his side well, so the entire book is structured around this clandestine organization called the Alpha Program. And the Alpha Program has nine Alpha operatives, each responsible for a different geographic area of the globe. And Alphas are engaged and sent on missions when the President of the United States can't handle something with diplomacy or all-out war. He needs something a little bit more. And so he sends in an alpha. And alphas only respond to the president. That's their one and only direct report. So it gives the president an unprecedented amount of flexibility with regards to how he handles missions uh, on the battlefield. Uh, it's also obviously highly unconstitutional, but it's a lot of fun, I think, for the reader <laughs> to imagine a situation like that. But part of the program and part of this clandestine world that I've created with the alpha program is the concept of the keeper. And a keeper is basically the same as a CIA handler, somebody who stays in the back and handles service and support and logistics of all the missions. And Eric Steele, my hero, his handler is a guy nicknamed Demo, and he's his right-hand man. He's a former alpha himself who is wounded, and he's on his way out. And along the way, 
Eric comes into contact with a character named Meg Hardin. She was a former U.S. Army major that was forced out and then joined the CIA and then worked in a clandestine organization called The Activity. And The Activity is a real clandestine organization that you probably haven't heard of, but they actually do exist. And they their job is to get intelligence for tier one special operators like Navy SEALs and Delta Force operators. They're super, super secret. And I loved I loved Meg. <laughs> I, I really did. I, I can't tell you how happy I, that makes me feel. Yeah, because I, I, she didn't feel like an, oh, I got to put a chick in there somewhere. <laughs> and um, just everything about her point of view, I thought was very sparse. And oftentimes I feel like female characters are are sort of, when men write them, they kind of go overboard in the other way. So I really like Oh, gosh. It makes me so happy to hear you say that. And, you know, I probably, it probably did happen in certain portions of her character, but I worked really, really hard to make sure that her character was authentic. And she, in many ways, her personality is taken from my daughter, who is seven, you know, but my daughter is fierce. And that's what Meg is. Meg is fierce. She doesn't want to be a side note. She doesn't want to be an ancillary character. She wants to be in the fight with Eric, you know? And that's an item of contention for them throughout the story where yep. Eric tries to push her aside and do the manly warrior thing and protect the woman and <laughs> but she doesn't want any of that because in many in fact in fact in the story she saves Eric a couple of times right. and so right. um god it makes me so happy to hear you say that you that you that you as a woman liked Meg you know she's a really important character to me I think another thing that you've attempted to do and you've done quite well is you talk a little bit about how the narrative of the returning soldiers is often one of, you know, challenge and, and the wounded soldier and the and the challenges that he or, and she faces. But you really are interested in talking about how combat vets have grown due to their service, how that service was a positive propellant yes. to their growth. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Yes. I mean, look, you know, I, I have been incredibly interested in the warrior's journey home. I think it's something that that every warrior, regardless of culture or the time that they served or even the, the army that they served in, has always had to deal with that, you know, because war is as old as time. And war, uh, and I don't care if you're carrying a sword and a shield or you're carrying a machine gun, it stays with you forever. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning the last thing you think about when you go to bed. And so I, I it's always been something that's been fascinating to me, but you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about recently is the whole concept of post-traumatic growth, you know, the whole, you know, post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder as if like when when soldiers come home from experiencing horrifying things on the battlefield that they're disordered, you know, the language around it makes one feel like they're broken. One important fact, I think like much of my service was empowering. It changed me for the better. I have a deep appreciation for life, you know, and I you know, I have a deep appreciation for how fragile life can be and how everything can change on a dime tomorrow. And so you live life to the fullest. You tell the people that you love, you love them. You give hugs when you think they're needed. And um, looking back, you know, yeah, I wouldn't change a thing about going to war. I wouldn't change. I mean, I experienced some terrible things, but I grew a lot of, from it. So I look at it as like post-traumatic growth. You know, I, I always encourage soldiers when they come back from war to not, it's not post-traumatic stress disorder. You're not disordered. You're a normal person reacting to horrifying things. Post That makes you normal. doesn't make you broken. So wear that experience on your chest, like as if it were an award, 
you know, be proud of it because that's what makes you a warrior. That's what separates you from everybody else around you that hasn't seen the same things that you have. And so, you know, part of writing Man of War, again, you know, a mainstream fiction story that has those themes in them that Americans can read, read about under, you know, grapple with, you know, and, and ultimately get a little bit closer with those men and women that serve our country and come mm -hmm. home and struggle. Yeah. And I pictured the guy, I literally pictured like the road warrior guy who's on a flight from Pittsburgh to New York, you know, reading this book and being completely immersed and, and, and getting everything that you've, you've, sought out to communicate, I, I feel like you've been successful in, in doing so. So Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That Actually, I want to ask you a question. It's a personal question in a weird way, but um, you've have you read um, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk? No, but you know, you're, oh the, you're the second person to tell me about this in, you, in as many I, days. You're going to love this book. It, it's such an interesting book, and I think it's it it achieves very much what you are working towards with your book um, in that it's a, it's a great work of fiction, and it helped me um, better understand um, what soldiers are going through. And I, there's one thing in that book that I've never forgotten, and it's a scene where a soldier's at their, you know, it's the big set piece where they're at the, um, where they're at the football game, and people keep coming up to him in the stadium and saying, thank you for your service, thank you for your service. And he the character talks about how he just really hates that, and he just finds it just somewhat trite and and it, it, it he he doesn't he doesn't want to be singled out he doesn't want to be thanked you know it was he was happy to do it he did it he did a good job what are your feelings on that what yeah, do, how I, do you feel when people come up to you in an airport or or under certain people complete strangers and say thank you for your service you know i really appreciate it you okay. know because you know because here's the thing there is a wide gulf between americans and our veterans there just is. And you have to understand that going into conversations like that. When an American comes up to you and thanks you for your service, they're coming up to do that because they really do have a deep appreciation for your service, but oftentimes don't know how to articulate it beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so while it can seem trite to a veteran, like, well, yeah, they're saying that, but that's all they're saying to me. So they don't really understand the nuances and complexity of what it means to serve, blah, blah, blah. I've heard it time and time again from vets. But I just say like, you know, just be grateful that you live in a country where people even care, you know? We served with foreign militaries in Afghanistan. And one of the things that just always struck me from talking to, say, Romanian soldiers or even Polish soldiers or anybody were, were like, it always amazed them how much Americans appreciated the service of our soldiers. Now that, that doesn't mean that they understand it, right? They mm. most people that most people that haven't served or aren't connected to it aren't going to understand what it means to serve. But guess what? I'm not a painter and I don't understand how it means to paint. It doesn't mean that I can't appreciate good art when I see it. You know, I always try to tell veterans to just try to look at the big picture. You know, these are Americans that are trying their best to appreciate and thank you for for your service, but not understanding what it fully means to serve. And to yeah. me, the onus is on the soldiers, on us to, to, to educate people about that. And, and veterans, I think, have not done a good enough job doing that. Interesting. So with this complex tale and with this blending of truth and fiction, how did you um, work? Did you have note cards? Did you, you know, sort of plot this very specifically? Or were you one of those guys who sort of knows the beginning and the end and allows 
the middle to sort of grow out of daily writing? That's a gr- I love these kinds of questions because I think that there's nothing more fun than creating a story from scratch. I just I absolutely love it. There's nothing else I'd rather do. Um, so what I do is is I do what's called a scene weave, and I lay out some of the big scenes in the book from point A to point B to point C, and and basically just write from those to those scenes. You know, get my character from say a nightclub in Beirut to a C-17 in Turkey where he's doing a halo jump into Algiers. You know, those big sweeping epic scenes are what your story needs to be built around. And that's also how you come up with your own niche scenes, right? Anybody that reads Man of War, in fact, people that have read advanced copies always say, you know, the halo jump was my favorite. I cannot believe that happened. You know, so these are things that haven't happened a whole heck of a lot in other thrillers. And... I, the reason why I think they they happen in Man of War and they're going to happen in the second book as well is because I spend a ton of time developing these scenes and what they feel like, what do they smell like, what's what's the character thinking, what's he afraid of, what are people looking at him, how does it feel, like what does the air feel like, you know, all that stuff has to go into creating an epic scene. Four or five of them, and then you write to them, you yeah. know. Yeah. So those are your building blocks. That's my building block. Yeah. And where is your workspace? <laughs> anywhere my kids are not. And so like, yeah, like I got three little kids, so nine, seven, and five. And so writing can be a challenge when you have little kids. So, because it's not like daddy's out on, you know, pushing around a lawnmower, you know, it's, it's like you're sitting at a computer and they don't really at that age fully understand what it is that you're doing. So my, my workspace can, it, it often travels with me, you know? Yeah. So I spend uh, a lot of time outside, Sometime inside, sometime in my bedroom with the doors locked. Sometimes I'm in my bathroom or in my closet. Again, wherever my kids aren't and wherever I can focus on the story is, is, is oftentimes where I'm working. So what have you what have you read that has influenced your fiction writing? Well, I have been a, a voracious reader my entire life. Started my first book that I ever read myself was The Hobbit. And then the next book after that I read was War of the Worlds. And then my dad read it to me after that. I mean, I was just obsessed with classic fiction. And I continued to read those stories all throughout my life and to include Afghanistan where I started. I mean, I read Lions of Lucerne uh, by Brad Thor on Combat Outpost Margah. And I just remember thinking to myself, God, that is just a awesome book. And if somehow I get out of Afghanistan alive, I want to write a book like this someday. You know? Really? And yeah, yeah. It was cool. And I, and I remember when I got, when I finally made it home and you know, Outlaw Platoon was going to happen, which was a journey in and of itself to even get it published. It was just, it's really hard to do. Um, I ended up writing Brad Thor and I told him that story and he wrote me back and we've since become friends. Um, But uh, yeah, I've always wanted to write a story like this. It's always been on my radar as as like a bucket list type thing. Um, But so classic literary fiction, H.G. Wells, J.R.R. Tolkien. I love, love, love Lee Child and Brad Thor and Vince Flynn. Uh, those guys are just huge influences on me. Also Stephen King, J.K. Rowling. I think yeah. I think the Harry Potter books are the best series of books ever written. I'll take that to my grave. People can laugh mm-hmm. at me all they want, but they're the best. But I read everything, everything under the sun. I even read the, I, don't tell anybody this, but I even read the first Twilight book. I realized very quickly yeah. that it really wasn't for me, but <laughs> but I read it. There you go. You read absolutely everything, that's for sure. What do you think is your biggest challenge as a writer? Like, what do you wish you could do more easily? Wow. You know, I storytelling is something that is, is of paramount importance. You know, I always say, 
I always try to refer to myself as a storyteller and, and not a writer, right? Because there are a lot of very, very good writers that cannot tell a good story. It is, it is far more important to know and understand the underpinnings of what it takes to structure a great story for people. And so for me, the craft of storytelling is something that is constantly evolving, something that I'm constantly striving to get better at day after day. And whether that's, you know, reading books by John Truby uh, on how to write a, a master's class level thriller or just reading classic works of fiction that help me get better, it, it's all about it's all about being a better storyteller each and every day, you know, because ultimately um, the people that pick up and read these books that, that really it's an honor for anybody to read the words that you put on a page. You want to make sure that you're bringing them a story that they can put down and feel like they got not, not only their money's worth, but they have to feel satisfied. They have to want more. And the only way to create that dynamic in the readers that, you know, I'm blessed to have is by writing a good story. And every time you do it, the, the, every story that you write has to be better than the last one. So it's just a tremendous challenge. And you referenced the second um, book in the series. Tell us a little bit about that. I am so excited to share this. I mean, really excited to share the first book. Comes out tomorrow, <laughs> but I'm really psyched about the second book because I think it's a more, I think it's I think it's just as good, if not a little bit better than the first one. And, you know, Eric Steele is, is forced to confront some uh uh, dark secrets in, in America's past, secrets that he'd never realized uh, were there and maybe by the end of it, wishes that, that weren't unearthed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean that America is the bad guy because in my books, I just feel like it, America will never be the bad guy. I look at America as like a shining city upon a hill and so does Eric Steele. But it doesn't mean that we don't have dark spots in our history that need to be addressed. Um, and Eric Steele looks down the barrel of that rifle a little bit. Yeah, forced to address that. Yes, forced to address it. So let me ask you a couple questions about actually publishing. So, you know, you you wrote your first book and you had your first publishing experience. Yes. Well, you were in very good hands with William Morrow, but... What what is what's the setup? How's this feeling? How's this feeling? Sort of setting up fiction as opposed to <laughs> to the memoir. It is totally different. Like I I I was really lucky to get Outlaw Platoon published. I don't even think uh, my editor David knows the story. I was rejected by probably thirty or forty literary agents before I got one. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when when he was finally and I was re- actually I was rejected by my own agent three or four times. <laughs> I just I just basically annoyed him enough to where he finally took me on and I ended up uh having a great co writer who sort of taught me the ropes of how to tell a good story with John Bruning and then uh and then we went through the arduous process of trying to find a publisher, and I had some interest from Penguin, but they already had an Afghan story coming out, so I got the no on that. And then everybody said no, but David, who was at William Morrow, mm-hmm. my editor at William Morrow, who just so happened to be on vacation at the time where the submissions were going on, and I remember I was sitting at uh, at you know in a Walmart pool, you know, at like eleven in the morning in, in a raft, <laughs> drinking like a mai tai, floating around, like crying in my beer, thinking, "Oh my gosh, I failed in my mission to get this story told." And no joke, my editor or my agent calls me. So I just talked to David Highfill at William Morrow. He loves the book. He wants to get it. And I was like, yes. And oh. so that was the beginning of Outlaw Platoon. And wow. Then, but man, fiction is so much different. Like my like this launch. So in what is, way? It's bigger. It's bigger. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was Well, I think it's also bigger because of the success of the first book. 
right? I mean, the first yeah. book was a really great success. Now David can really launch you, and and people are like, oh, you know, a nut, you you have your bona fides in terms of a a good storyteller. Now we're ready for the next story. Oh, thanks. You know, I, yeah, you know, it's you know, Outlaw Platoon is great. It gave me a platform to do a lot of really great things in the world, you know, and do a lot of good on behalf of the veteran community, our first responders and their families and stuff. And, you know, also gave me the opportunity, I think really helped me to to have at least some sort of, you know, springboard into fiction. It, it's, you know, been on my mind for a long time. You know, I've really got to, it's, you know, Launching fiction is different than nonfiction. You know, not every reader that you have in nonfiction is going to follow you to fiction. But like, part of my mission in writing this book is not just you know the military component, which we talked about. But reading is really awesome, and it's something Thank that our kids don't do enough. Our kids don't do enough reading. You know, they're so into the phones and the Fortnites and video games. And don't get me wrong, I love all that too. But reading is cool, and kids need to do it more. And so. Uh, you know, there's a lot of nonfiction reading, a lot of history reading in our schools, but I don't think that fiction reading is something that's cultivated enough in our schools, you know, because it always, t- I got two rules of thumb for my kids. Nonfiction reading is important. Do it a lot. If you like it, that's great. Learn about history, learn about historical fact, or learn about what's going on in the world. But you have to read fiction too, because it cultivates an area of your mind. It cultivates your imagination, you know, creative thinking is everything. And so you have to read both. And so, um, and the whole reason I told you that is because people that read Outlaw Platoon, it's been a mission of mine for the last year to try to convince them to make the jump to read yeah. Man of War. And I think I think we're there. I think we're there, and, I th- and I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the prospect of them reading this first fiction story. Oh, it's such an exciting book. And I'm going to press this book on a lot of people because I really awesome. think it's I think it's a great book for like the adult male version yeah. of the, <laughs> the reluctant reader. We talk a lot about reluctant readers like in middle grade. Yes. And I mean, don't you know so many men who never read fiction? I do. I do. All they read is nonfiction. And I'm this telling is the you, I swear perfect so bridge true. book. You you're gonna do it. You're gonna bridge them from nonfiction to fiction. I'm convinced. I like you, that the bridge book. You and David, because I, I do think you're right. There's so many, so many folks who, who just don't do it. I, I don't mean, know come on, why I'm an is. infantry guy. You know, I'm a uh, the definition of a meat eater, right? In fact, that's really all I eat. Like cereal, maybe dinosaur <laughs> chicken nuggets and and steak. But but the important thing is is I read Harry Potter and I loved it. Yeah. You know? And and the reason why I love and have a deep appreciation for those stories is because I read them when I was a kid. And yeah. I and I would learn to cultivate my imagination when I was young and if our kids don't learn to do it today, what are we losing? Yeah, I I completely agree. It drives me bonkers when all these men that I know and love I, they don't they don't read fiction. They just for some reason they're just convinced it's not for them. So this, yeah, this, I don't understand this is going to be a good bridge book. I'm telling you, this. I is love work. that. I didn't. I've never heard that term before. But you're. <laughs> I love it. I hope that it is a bridge book. Well, it's going to be huge, and I thank you so very much. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. The book is Man of War by Sean Parnell. It publishes Tuesday, September 11th by William Morrow, and it's available wherever print books and eBooks and audiobooks are sold. Thank you so much, Sean, for the book and for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard. And if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.